0: I definitely needed to keep guiding to make a living to support myself but the cool thing was that i actually found guiding and sponsored climbing to really be a good balance to each other neither one fulfilled me all the time full-time like guiding i have a love of teaching and i love being a part of other people achieving their goals but i obviously wasn't climbing at my edge when i was guiding that's not the job and then the other side when i was climbing at my edge personally with my friends I like loved that but it didn't it didn't quite fill all the buckets for me not interacting as much with other people or feeling those decision making challenges when there's a lot more on the line than just me and my you know my climbing partner and things like that so I really loved both
1: That was alpinist Adrian Bollinger, and I'm your host, Shanty. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. This is episode 27. Uh, My lucky number, perchance. Anyway, Mary is back with me this week, and so today she and I are going to be chatting it up with Adrian about his career as a professional mountain climber and guide. Now, if you know Adrian at all, you'll know that he spent quite a bit of time on Everest. Eight summits of Everest, actually, one of them without supplemental oxygen. And sure, we're going to talk about Everest in K2 today and how he scaled those giants, including the time he did it without supplemental oxygen, but we're going to go a little bit beyond that. We're also going to go back to the beginning to find out how he got into climbing mountains in the first place. And of course, we couldn't help but talk a little bit about his fiance, Emily Harrington, and how last fall she became the first woman to free climb El Cap's Golden Gate route in a day. So as part of that, Adrian's going to talk with us about having the honor to belay Emily for part of her way up that route. And of course, he's going to answer for us that all-important celebrity question. What even is normal life for these two celebrities of the climbing world? So lots of good stuff to get into today with Adrian. But before we get there, did you know that you can climb mountains with Adrian or one of his super qualified guides through his company, Alpenglow Expeditions? Alpenglow takes people on mountain expeditions all over the world. So if you want to check them out, head over to our show notes on the Gaia GPS blog to check out their link. And also, just as a little addendum, we wanted to let you know that when Adrian's out in the mountains, he relies on Gaia GPS to find his way. Take it, Adrian. I can't say Gaia
0: saved my life. I can't point to one incident, but it has made my job as a mountain guide Um, and as a climber and a skier so much easier and so much better and we as guides now we no longer recommend people carry backup gps's we only have them carry backup battery packs for their phones with gaia loaded and maps downloaded it is just a key tool we use around the world so
1: cool gaia thanks adrian we'll get back to you in a second now here's the really cool thing for you my dear listeners you don't have to be a ball or mountain guide like Adrian to appreciate Gaia GPS. With literally hundreds of maps to choose from, it has everything you need for navigating a weekend backpacking trip, a national park scenic road trip, or even an overlanding trip like my wife and I did last week in the Arizona desert with some friends. It's even perfect for finding that quick little day hike right near the house. Bottom line is this, Gaia GPS is the gold standard wilderness and offline navigation tool. And right now, You can get a great deal on Gaia by going to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast. And by great deal, I mean you can get up to a 50% discount on a membership. And if I may say so ever so confidently, you can't get that good of a deal anywhere else, really. GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get up to a 50% discount. Okay, let's get down to it with Adrian Bollinger. Coming out here and um, you've been doing all this climbing, all the running, and we're going to get into everything that you've done, especially uh, your climbs on Everest. But um, you probably can tell a little bit by uh, your accent, so you're not American born.
0: <laughs> That's right. No, so uh, it's actually like the most common question I get when I give slideshows and things like that is like, "Where are you from?" So. Um, I was born in England. And when I was six years old, my family moved to central Massachusetts, Worcester, Massachusetts. So my accent, I guess what I have left is like mostly Massachusetts with a tiny bit of Brit mixed in. (laughs) (laughs)
2: sounds like the Brit cemented in there pretty good yeah so i can hear it (laughs) it's
0: it's funny my sister i have a sister who's only 13 months older than me so pretty similar age and somehow she made it a priority when she moved to the states to get rid of her accent because we got made fun of so much when we were young and she has no british accent whatsoever no you know and and I'm left with this, and I don't know where I went wrong. <laughs>
2: awesome. So you grew up in Massachusetts, and, and what got you into mountains and climbing? How did yeah, you A so, uh,
0: little bit of luck, a little bit of location, and then some great mentors, I'd say.
1: If you haven't heard of Adrian Bollinger before, you've probably seen him in movies or ads or maybe even in the news. He's become sort of the darling of mountain climbing. He's led over 150 international climbing expeditions on six continents and has made 17 successful attempts of 8,000-meter peaks in the Himalayas, including eight summits of Everest and the more dangerous and sketchy K2. And he's done both of those without supplemental oxygen. But for all these lofty accomplishments, Adrian's one of the most down-to-earth mountain celebrities. There's an ease about him, something about his nature that makes you feel comfortable in his presence. He's quick to smile and laugh out loud, and with his lanky reach and tousled dark hair, it's easy to think that he's been groomed for climbing right from the start. But nothing could be further from the truth. Adrian has had a humble start in the mountains, and while he credits so many great mentors to getting him outside, it was really his cool mom that got him off the ground.
0: When we moved, I I didn't have an outdoorsy family, but where we lived was walking distance to a little ski hill called Mount Wachusett. So we moved into the snow, we moved, everyone went skiing, we could walk to the hill. So I started skiing right away and pretty much they had night skiing. I started skiing like, four or five nights a week after school and things like that is what my friends could do and we were allowed to. And, you know, um, so that was a lot of fun. And then my closest friend grow- growing up was this kid, Greg, and his dad was kind of a well-known East Coast climber. And we, when we both turned, I think, 12 years old, he started teaching both of us to climb and to lead climb. So really young, I started getting this experience like placing traditional gear, be, that level of responsibility. And by the time we were 15, we were getting dropped off in the White Mountains in New Hampshire in the middle of winter and doing Mount Washington winter ascents and doing all these things that like looking back on it, it's kind of remarkable. We didn't get ourselves killed, but we like got through and it was this amazing, like learning ground. And I just loved it so much. That is so <laughs>
2: cool. Just thinking about these 12-year-olds going out and lead climbing, doing some trad routes. Right. And, um, and your, your, par- your parents let you... Well, so
0: when we were 14 or 15, one of like this small group of friends actually had a pretty real accident and pulled three or four cams falling and hit the ground and had to go to the hospital. And ended up being fine, but it definitely brought that reality that we were doing this pretty serious thing. And um, my parents were like... S- my parents like raised my sister and I to be willing to try anything to be able to try anything that was one of the great like lucky realities I had um was to be able to take risks and try things with with climbing once they saw me starting to really get into it they definitely pulled back some they weren't so excited about it anymore but my mom had this great like sort of dichotomy so on one side, if I was going rock climbing, I couldn't tell her. I had to tell her I was going to the library. But she knew that meant I was going climbing, but she didn't want to talk about it. But at the same time, she knew we were lead climbing with only like nuts and hexes equipment, pretty basic, cheap equipment, because that's all we could afford. And my mom actually bought me my first rack of cams. We never talked about it. Once every couple of weeks or once a month, another Cam would show up in my bed when I came home from school. She'd gone to the local like Eastern Mountain Sports EMS shop to figure out what I needed, and what I was talking about. And she helped build my rack, but it was never something like she wanted credit for or necessarily encouraged out loud. It was pretty cool. Well yeah. So sort of skipping forward a lot of years. I mean it was it was a tough road for I think for for a family and my parents like choosing this. Um and and obviously the risk bumps up as you get into these bigger adventures. And I was clearly doing more risky things. And and also there was, you know, Like I I went to college, I went to school in DC and had met another great mentor there named Chris Warner, uh, who owned the Earth Tracks climbing gyms and was a uh, well-known climber. And he started taking me on my first international trips. And I remember I was 18, 17 or 18 years old, freshman in college, persuaded my parents to let me go for Christmas break to Ecuador and climb my first 20,000 foot peaks. And I remember having these kind of like fights about it. I was going to miss the holidays and things, but it was like, I'll never go again. I'll never again this opportunity, please let me go once. And I think I've now done like 38 trips to Ecuador to climb down there and guide down there. And so it was kind of this progression, right?
1: Adrian graduated from Georgetown University, and it was always the plan that he would become a doctor. He applied and was accepted into Georgetown Medical School, but the mountains pulled him away.
0: I was always meant to go to medical school. I graduated college, got into med school, took a year off to get climbing out of my system and then traveled the world with Chris for a year guiding and climbing on... You know, five continents or something like that. and my parent after that year was up and I chose not to return to school but let my med school acceptance kind of like lapse, um, my parents were not impressed. Uh, so <laughs> that was probably that was probably the low point in their like thinking I was just avoiding responsibility versus like making choices that I really believed I could create
1: a life from. Adrian knew he had to show his parents firsthand what his life as a mountain guide had become.
0: And where it started to shift was about three years later, I persuaded my parents to go on a trip I was guiding to Ecuador. And they were not climbers, not even hikers, not adventurers, really. But they agreed to go on the trip as high as the like refuge, the hut on the side of the mountain we were climbing. This 20,000-foot peak. There's a hut that sits at 16,000 feet. So they joined us on an eight-day expedition. They went that high. And I think for the first time, they saw like – their 23-year-old son, like having an effect on very successful people's lives, you know, whether they were doctors or business owners or whatever their career was, they were coming down and having these really powerful experiences that I could help shepherd in the mountains. And it really, I think, changed my family's view of why this was meaningful and how much I loved it. And,
1: And they've been huge supporters ever since. What started as an innocent gap year? turned into a lifetime career of chasing high-altitude mountains.
0: It, it, it was a hard decision, you know. Like, I had kind of been groomed on this path, though, even though neither of my parents were doctors. Uh, I was good in school and science and math, and I had a family friend who was a surgeon, and I used to in go in the summers to, like, his two weeks at his hospital to learn what he was doing. It was just my, meant to be my path. And, um, you know, I think... So I had this year off. I got to take this year off and just do what I loved. And at the end of that year, there were a couple of things. I was paying my bills just barely. I think I was making like $16,000 a year working like way more than full time. But I could pay my bills and eat peanut butter and jelly and burritos so I could support myself. I was like absolutely challenged. Not only physically, but like mentally, the decision making that I found in mountain guiding and the problem solving, I just really connected with and loved. So I was very like, I could see that I wasn't just bored of it. It wasn't like a summer job. It wasn't like what maybe ski instructing was for me or other things that I had tried. Um, And then I think the third thing was that I had been raised with a belief that if you want something badly enough, like, and you go after it, it. it might work out. And so I kind of believed that I could let the med school acceptance go. And if in two years time, this wasn't working out, I'd find a way back in. It might be brutal. It might be harder. So I didn't believe the door was totally closed. And so I could kind of move forward
1: with this. In the coming years, the mountains held tightly onto Adrian. Medical school faded away in the background.
0: Yeah. I mean, a couple of things happened. I I kept loving the actual experience of guiding and climbing, of course, going to more and more countries and more and more mountains and starting to build on my altitude. That was also the time that I started to get sponsors. Um, that allowed me a little freedom in my own personal climbing as well as guiding. And these, these sponsors, I mean, I think the sponsor world has changed over the 20 something years that I've been in this. We're talking about the late nineties. When I, when I left, when I finished school and was climbing full-time back then, like if you were getting free clothes and maybe a plane ticket or two a year, like that was like, you had made it right. So I definitely needed to keep guiding to make a living to support myself. But the cool thing was that I actually found guiding and sponsored climbing to really be a good balance to each other. Neither one fulfilled me all the time, full time, like guiding, I have a love of teaching and I love being a part of other people achieving their goals. But I obviously wasn't climbing at my edge when I was guiding. That's not the job. And then the other side, when I was climbing at my edge personally with my friends, I like loved that. But it didn't, it didn't quite fill all the buckets for me, not interacting as much with other people or feeling those decision-making challenges when there's a lot more on the line than just me and my, you know, my climbing partner and things like that. So I really loved both. And so those two years, like I kept growing in both of those areas. Chris at Earth Treks kept giving me more responsibility and teaching me more and more about the business side of things. And that's when I started to see like, wow, maybe I could make a living at this. Like I'm interested in business. I love guiding. I'm, I like climbing for myself. Like all the pieces kind of feel like they could fit together.
2: When, when in the scheme of this whole thing, did Everest become like a a goal? Do you remember it being a dream of yours or did you learn about it in school one day or when did it catch your attention and how did you get there? Yeah.
0: So, um, Everest specifically, caught, it, that's such a great question. Everest caught my attention and like was a big part of why I dove into this in those early teenage years as I was learning to climb. Like I remember reading like Reinhold Messner's book, um, you know, about his solo, no oxygen attempt and success on Everest. And I think it was 1978 when he did it. And that to me, like that got me started reading all the books I could find about Everest. And what I kept noticing was like, It's Everest to me represented like this great unknown. People were going, having no idea what the outcome would be. Scientists and doctors actually told Messner, "There's no way a human being could survive that high without supplemental oxygen." And yet these explorers, they went anyway. They, you know, Messner tried anyway. And when he couldn't find a partner to do it with him, he just went alone. Like the idea of facing the unknown, that powerfully really caught me. And that got me started on this Everest idea. So like when the 96 tragedy happened and Into Thin Air was written, I read everything about it. And then I read the counterpoint book, The Climb by Anatoly Bukarev. I was obsessed, but I had no idea how to get there. I knew from those books, like it costs $65,000 a person to go to Everest. And it was like, well, that's never going to happen for me.
1: <laughs> Guiding became the golden ticket. Like so many mountain guides, Adrian was leading clients the first time he climbed Mount Everest. It's something a
0: lot of people, I think, don't realize. Like Mountain guides, when they go and guide Everest, work Everest their first time, almost always it's their first time on the mountain because they wouldn't have had a way to afford to be able to go in any other style. Um, So that was definitely something I was working towards. But it took me all the way until... 2008 so i was 32 years old and kind of 12 or 13 years into my full-time guiding career before i went to everest for the first time um took that long i think to gain the experience you really need to guide a mountain like that and it took that long to kind of figure out how to have that opportunity
1: so how many times have you been up everest now
0: so i've been on i've run 13 expeditions so 13 years in a row on the mountain until this past season it was canceled um i've summited eight times
1: so of the eight times that you summited but you were there 13 times it was eight times you were going up the peak were there any times that you were trying to go up and were turned back
0: Uh, Yeah, so numerous of those seasons were seasons where we ultimately failed. And I think that's something people also don't realize. We often hear like, oh, Everest is easy now, or, you know, companies maybe slightly unethically are like, oh, we have 90% summit success rates and things like that. But all of that is actually BS. If you actually look at any company's uh, ratio over a decade or two decades, You know, like five of the past 13 seasons, we've had zero people summit, meaning no one goes to the top Um, for reasons that I think are part of the challenge of Everest, but people sometimes don't realize or they forget. Things like um, politics or an earthquake or avalanche hazards so high that no one in their right mind would climb on the mountain and go high or... Uh, You know, a year where the winds never drop below 100 miles per hour, even though you stay there for 75 days, the winds just never drop. And like, these are the things that no one talks about, Um, but they're part of what make Everest so darn hard. And still to this day, with all the technology and all the commercialization, still leaves this real unknown to the experience that I love. Um, But people shouldn't go there if they're not ready to potentially go home without a summit.
2: Certainly one thing I never thought of that you mentioned really are politics. How do those come into play? Well,
0: yeah. So, I mean, there have now been, I guess, three seasons that either you could say were completely uh, 0% summit rates or partially due to what I would call politics. So in 2008, that first season, China deciding they wanted to bring the Olympic torch to the summit to kick off the Beijing Games. And so eight days before we left home, after having put hundreds of thousands of dollars out there and everything. They just said international teams aren't welcome this season, so we bring the torch up. That's pure politics and nothing you can do about it. Um, This, you know, COVID this spring, you know, had some of that same feel, at least in the early days. Uh, We canceled our season in partnership really with China, I think on March 12th. but it was very uncertain what was going to happen with the virus it was more a decision of you know this discomfort of china having us in their country and us being there and not knowing how things were going to to play out so we canceled in 2019 again before everyone left home but then an example kind of in the other direction in um in 2015 we were on the chinese side when the earthquake happened the big earthquake hit mount everest and on the nepali side base camp was really devastated I think it, I'm, I'm gonna get the numbers wrong but you know somewhere somewhere in the vicinity of 20 people were killed in this earthquake at Everest base camp on the Nepali side my team was on the Tibetan Chinese side we um, had the pleasure I guess of feeling the earthquake the two base camps are only 10 miles apart so it was the wildest thing i've ever been in you know minutes long watching the ground undulating down this half mile wide valley rocks and things falling from all the mountains but being in a place on on the tibetan side the the base camp is it's in the middle of this half mile wide valley and nothing that fell got to the base camps. We were actually safe, but in this incredibly intense experience, no one was killed on the Chinese side. And so over the next week, we actually stayed and uh, planned on continuing our expedition. Sherpa had the opportunity, any Sherpa who wanted to could go home if they had an incident in their village, but we thought we might stay and climb. And ultimately it was a Political decision on the part of China to say we don't think we should be climbing on this mountain after all this uh, death and destruction in Nepal, and uh, which we completely agreed with the decision. But again, it was a cancellation all the way through the expedition, not having anything to do with climbing conditions. Conditions were fantastic. The ropes were already up to above 8,000 meters on the route. Um, it was really, you, you know countries' decisions of what was best for for their relationships. So our team ended up returning, heading to Nepal and and doing like uh, volunteer and aid work there before heading home that was 2015 the year before 2014 was the icefall avalanche in nepal where 19 climbers were killed in a single accident and we were still climbing from nepal that year so we were while none of our team was killed we were there we were a part of this accident and so we actually had clients who and that year in nepal completely closed down climbing after the accident as they should have um, and so that so we actually had clients who were canceled in 2014 found the resources and time and training to come back in 2015, were canceled due to the earthquake in 2015, and then had to decide what to do after. And every client from that 2015 accident ended up coming back and summiting over the next three years in 16, 17, and and 19. So, um, but they're, they're really tough decisions. I, everyone thinks, I think a lot of people think that, you know, we just... We just kill it on Everest because the numbers sound so big. It's such an expensive trip, um, but I definitely haven't bought my first yacht or beach house yet. <laughs> like you know, the, <laughs> and what I always tell clients now, very transparently, is like the good years when everything goes right, we do need to make a profit, but that profit needs to not only be. needs to cover all those bad years in some way in our heads. And, you know, primarily Everest uh, for Alpenglow Expeditions has become like a loss leader. It's a big part of why the company has gained the reputation it has is how we've worked on Everest and the ethics that we're trying to hold to there. But it's not actually where we make our money as a company.
2: You said it's expensive. How expensive is it?
0: So Alpenglow, we, we run small teams with highly certified guides and we pay fair wages and all these things. We're actually one of the more expensive companies. We're $85,000 per person uh, to go to the mountain. Wow, It's a big, big investment.
1: Is that the same depending on if you uh, go from the Nepal side or the China side?
0: Uh, so we only now run trips from the Tibetan side, the Chinese side. Uh, and, and that's got to do with my opinions of the ethics of having staff Sherpa and guides going through the icefall numerous times on the nepali side i almost got myself killed twice in the icefall i've been through it 38 times um, and ultimately just felt like i had numerous close calls with my Sherpa, and ultimately felt like if i like did the numbers out if i run 20 years of trips on mount everest there's no way i can avoid fatalities and like that's just not something i wanted to do so i only run from the chinese side now and the so that price is for the Chinese side. I don't know if that actually answers your question. Like China is slightly more expensive than Nepal, but they're within like 15 or 20% of each other of the actual costs of running on each side. But you'll see a huge spread now. And there's a lot of like um, what I would call questionably, ethically questionable companies running Mount Everest trips now. So it used to be back in the 90s when you read a book like Into Thin Air the cheapest trip to Everest was $65,000. The most expensive trip to Everest was also $65,000. That's what it cost to run a trip on Mount Everest. Well, starting five or six years ago, companies started coming in offering Everest as cheap as $20,000. Now it's settled out in the $30,000 range because even they couldn't do it at 20. But the only way they can do that is to do things like not bring enough oxygen, not have any sort of communication system, satellite communications, uh, radios, phones, things like that. And to pay their Sherpa, you know, we, we know some companies are paying their Sherpa 10 to 20 times less than we do. Um, so you know, five to ten percent of the wages. But the way they can do that, no Sherpa with experience on Mount Everest and training from the Khumbu climbing Center would ever accept those fees because they can make really top top end fees. They're kind of like the superheroes of Nepal. Um, so the people that these budget companies are taking calling Sherpa are actually lowland porters. And they're people who have traditionally just carried loads for trekkers in the villages. And now they're being put in down suits and told to go up the mountain, but they don't have the skills or the experience to do it. And that's why we're seeing these increased rates of accidents among Sherpa, increased rates of frostbite among Sherpa. They're just not trained to do the job they're now being given.
2: And I see all these pictures, you know, in the media of Everest being so crowded. Is that part of why it's so crowded because of the these low rates and... More guides up there, what about the permit system?
0: absolutely, and it is uh, these are really challenging issues that i don 't want to say I have all the answers to because I wish that not only people who had eighty five thousand dollars could climb Everest. You know what I mean like there is the, yeah. the, you know like i I do want to find ways for people to be able to climb Everest, who have built the experience and taken the time and um and it's a massive amount of money. The problem is the infrastructure that is necessary for non-professional alpinists to climb that mountain and get down alive is massive. And that's what I think is often missed. Um, and so the overcrowding is in part happening to the new cut rate budget operators. It's opening up Everest to a lot of people who could never afford it before. Primarily not Americans or Europeans, primarily um, you know uh, the new middle class from countries like India and China and Indonesia.
2: Adrian, you you mentioned something earlier that with all the people up there, it's, Everest has kind of got this reputation of, oh, it's easy now. Um, what what is the crux of Everest? Like where does that lie in the mountain?
0: I think two things. The e- easiest thing for people to kind of understand and feel is like you know, you're basically being asked to do like marathon somewhere between a 10 K and a marathon a day each day for 30 days or so. Of course you have some rest days in there, but even the rest days at high altitude feel like you're doing like a 10 K. And so like the, the ability to put out sustained effort day after day after day, I think is one huge challenge of the mountain. Um, The second one I'd say is like mental strength in the face of things going wrong. Uh, Inevitably, no matter what company you hire, including mine, kind of like we've talked about already, things are going to go wrong. You are going to get sick. You're going to get diarrhea at some point. You're going to get an upper respiratory cough. Uh, You're going to get the weather wrong and get too cold and get a little scared for your fingers or toes on a day that you moved up the mountain. And like for many people, like I think, you, you expect and want to feel a top form, especially on summer push and summer day. And Everest is the opposite. Like instead of it being like an Ironman triathlon where the night before you got 12 hours of sleep and ate really well and got a massage and rested for a week, on summit day on Everest, you are going to feel the worst you've ever felt in your life. And you still need to get out of the tent and perform for 20 hours. And that's mentally incredibly difficult on people.
1: Is it literally just like you get to the summit and you just tag it and like immediately you start going back down like... Certainly, that's the safest choice, right? When you were on the summit, you are the furthest from your safety system, whether
0: that's extra oxygen, your doctor, a warm tent. You are the furthest from that you can be on planet Earth, and so it is a really scary place. Um, actually, that's one story I tell a lot. Like my first time summiting in two thousand nine, I did not enjoy it at all. I got on top; it was my first time. I had a client starting to show symptoms of cerebral edema. He kind of pushed to his absolute limit, and like we spent 45 seconds on top. Luckily, another guy took a photo of me or I'd never be able to prove I was there. And then the next like 12 hours were like scary, dangerous, hard work getting this sick person down. So a lot of times there's not a lot of joy up there. You're just like, Trying to get out of there, just like you said. There are rare exceptions. In two thousand nine, I was uh, sorry. Two thousand ten, I was able to summit with the Sherpa team that was fixing to the top, and that was my first summit of the season. And just nine Sherpa and me, and we spent forty minutes on top at three in the afternoon, completely windless day. Um, and it was one of the most, like you know, if if I do have spiritual moments in my life, that was one of them. And so, you know, those are the ones I really cherish that that I've had the opportunity to spend some time up there and think about what it means instead of just the tag and run for your life.
1: As Adrian gained experience on Everest, the mystique of climbing the world's highest mountain faded, and he craved an unfamiliar experience. So he tried to scale it without supplemental oxygen. At 29,029 feet above sea level, fewer than 200 people have been able to summit without the assistance of oxygen. And, well, the first attempt didn't fly.
0: Like, so, you know, I had this path. I finally got to Everest. I'd worked as a guide for 15 years. You know, it had been quite hard to get there. I got there. Then in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, like I was just summiting every time. Some seasons I was summiting twice, once with Sherpa while rope fixing. And then again with my clients, things were going pretty well. And I I was loving all of it. But I also, I think, started to realize that the whole reason Everest was so important to me was the unknown of the outcome, and I was lucky enough, genetically probably more than anything else, genetically and experience that with supplemental oxygen, I now knew I could summon. The question wasn't there for me, um, and and it maybe never had been totally like, and so that then kind of brought this idea of trying without oxygen into my mindset because that was that's what my clients i felt like were experienced that true unknown pushing their bodies and brains further than they could go or they thought they could go um that's what i was seeing around me but i didn't necessarily think i felt it myself and so that set me on this quest to try without oxygen
2: and how did it go the first time (laughs) yeah i mean it turned out like uh
0: I got exactly what I was looking for, even though it was hard to accept that at the time, because in 2016, I went with my climbing partner, Corey Richards. Uh, Thanks to, you know, we were both on the Eddie Bauer team. So we had this great support from this company. So I could take a year away from my guiding company. Um, We'd also spent kind of a decade at that point building Alpenglow's system. So the guides and our expedition doctor and our base camp manager could run the Alpenglow Everest team with oxygen. So I could be out of the decision-making structure and try without. And I went, I was having this phenomenal year and I was so strong and I was getting to run all over the mountain with the Sherpa and with Corey. And it was amazing until it wasn't. I essentially, um, I think looking back at it now, I can recognize that I pushed too hard at times that it didn't really matter. Um, and I ended up like bonking on my summit push. Uh, I got to the highest camp at 27,000 feet and was already truly exhausted. So then I spent 10 hours there, not really able to drink, not able to eat, not able to sleep, just shivering from the cold, then tried to summit anyway. And by 28,500 feet, I was so cold, I had lost feeling behind my wrists. That meant I could no longer clip devices onto the fixed rope that the Sherpa had put in. So I was soloing. Um, Corey, my partner was quite a bit stronger than me. So he was ahead of me. So I was alone and, uh, and I had to, I, I definitely knew I was going to get myself killed. And, you know, getting down was so hard that I think I came closer than I actually should have or wanted to um my expedition doctor had probably been yelling in my earpiece for you know four hours to turn around that I was slurring my words and I was too cold but I had to make that decision myself and um uh you know I got back down I was able to get back down to 27,000 feet camp four where we had supplemental oxygen for emergencies put on that oxygen and I'm sure that's why I saved my fingers um but yeah I I got the crap kicked out of me
1: Adrian was only six hundred feet from the summit. It was so close. Adrian studied his mistakes and went back for a second try.
0: It was impossible. It was definitely impossible at my pace. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was it was it was brutal. It would you know, I make it sound like it was very clear cut. Now it was not a clear cut decision at all. At the time, it was, I felt so close that I was so cold but at the same time corey was still able to keep going so then in my head it was kind of like well maybe it's not too cold maybe if i go a little bit faster i can rewarm because that's how it works in colorado or in tahoe we get cold all the time right we lose our fingers all the time from playing with our boot buckles or something but we get them back by going faster and raising our heart rates The problem on Everest without supplemental oxygen is you just can't go faster. There is no way to generate more heat through more work. A lot of people think your heart rate must be maxed out when you're at the summit of Everest. It actually isn't because your heart doesn't have enough oxygen to beat at your max level. So your heart rate data, when you look at your Garmin watch, might only have been 145 or 150. Uh, It's just not enough to generate heat. So once you're in that hole, you cannot get back out. Wow,
2: Is that what they call the death zone at like above 8,000 meters?
0: Above 8,000 meters, 26,000 feet is colloquially called the death zone. There's no science behind that, except um, certainly human beings can't live there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I was, you know, I was at 28,500 or something like that. So I was way, way above that. And as I've done more climbing without supplemental oxygen, what I've learned is, and this is true with everyone, we all kind of have a ceiling where we can acclimatize to, or we can still function well at. And I've had these very rare few clients that literally can't go above 18,000 feet. No matter what you do, no matter how long you take, no matter what drugs you use, they're just not going to acclimatize. They are the non-acclimatizers. It's a very small group. Then there's this percentage of the population, 80 or 85%, that can acclimatize pretty well, but do it at different speeds to like the mid altitudes, 23, 24, 25, 26,000 feet. And then there's this percentage of the population that we can go higher than that, but we still have these limits. So. You probably know there's a group of climbers who have tried to climb all 14 8,000-meter peaks, the 14 tallest peaks of the world, Um, an incredibly difficult thing to do without supplemental oxygen. Well, now, over the decades, there's been this whole group, quite a few of them, who have climbed 13 of the 14 everything except Everest, and I've tried Everest over and over and over again. But Everest being 750 feet higher than K2 has meant they can do K2 and everything below, but they can't do Everest. And for me, I think my line is very close to the summit of Everest because uh, I, you know, I I've shared this story before, but I don't remember a lot of my final summit push. I ended up going back in 2017 and summiting without supplemental oxygen with a team around me. I was blacked out for a lot of it. I don't remember things like meeting Killian journey, this famous runner and friend on the summit and having a whole conversation and a hug and swearing. It didn't happen until I was shown on the video because I had a filmer with me that I, this thing had happened. Um, So I was really non-functioning from a brain perspective and very lucky to have a strong team around me, which is part of how I decided to climb it after failing in 2016. And yet two years later, I could go to K2, a significantly harder mountain in some ways, and be on the summit of the mountain negotiating with our porters for how we were going to leave base camp three days later. I could count, I could do things, and it was only 750 feet different.
1: After climbing Everest without supplemental oxygen, Adrian set his sights on K2, also without oxygen. K2 is lower than Everest, but K2 is a technical climb with hazardous rock and icefall and exposure to wild weather and avalanches. The danger plays out in the mountain's fatality rates. Very
0: importantly, fatality rate-wise, Everest now has around a 1% fatality rate.
1: Uh, so
0: 1% person out of every 100, uh, ever, or K2 is still over 20%. So 1 in 5 die. Wow. And that has remained true even if things as things like commercialization have begun, fixed ropes have been used, communication has come to the mountain, numbers have increased. And the reason for that is I think that it has a lot of objective hazards that we can't control, specifically rockfall along the route. Icefall from seracs so or hanging glaciers along the route, really unpredictable weather in Pakistan. It sits so much further north and west of the Nepal and Tibet Himalaya. It has totally different weather systems that our uh, meteorologists are still not very good at forecasting. Um, and then really high avalanche danger. So these things that we can't really control, if you choose to climb those mountains, you might just get unlucky in a way that Mount Everest, the north side of Mount Everest doesn't feel that way. It doesn't have those uh, random risks at the same level. So that makes the mountain much more dangerous. The route is also much more technical. So you're climbing with your hands a lot more, whether it's on rock or on ice with ice tools, instead of just walking up snow in general on a mountain like Mount Everest. that that makes it more dangerous because if little things go wrong, it's very hard to get off the mountain. So a twisted ankle, a broken wrist, things like this that just happen, make because the terrain is so much more technical, those things can end in real fatalities and real accidents. Um, it also means that anything that falls down from above you tends to gain a lot of momentum and hit everything below, whereas on Everest, things tend to stop in the snow, if that makes sense.
2: That's so interesting. Just a few, well, 800 more feet or whatever. It makes such a big difference.
0: Such a huge difference. You're just getting into that altitude. I think when the human body literally can not take another step.
2: We kind of talk about these mountains, like you just kind of go there and, and start your and summit, but <laughs> like K2, for instance, it's a long trek to get back in there. This is a huge expedition just to go to the base of the mountain yeah um, how, how did it go for you um just getting up to base camp like on k2 i think i i read a little bit about <laughs> yeah. you having some troubles on the way up the mountain
0: yeah you know i i first of all i completely fell in love with pakistan so i kind of built my business and my personal climbing career in nepal and tibet and i loved those mountains so much and pakistan um I was invited on a team to climb K2 really early in my career in 2008, actually. And uh, I ended up not going because it would have meant I went to Everest, K2, and Manaslu, another 8,000-meter peak, back-to-back-to-back, and I didn't think my relationship or business could survive that. And, uh, and so I didn't, I didn't go to K2. And then on that expedition, it was the year where 11 climbers were killed in a single icefall accident, including the friend who had invited me on that expedition, um, a Norwegian named Rolf. And so that kind of made my decision for me, like, this line in the sand where I was like, I'm not going to Pakistan, I'm going to Nepal and Tibet. So I never went to Pakistan. And I always knew I'd go someday, but I I knew I wasn't going to start guiding K2 or anything like that. Um, So when I went in 2019, it was my first year going there, first time. And I was Absolutely blown away. Blown away by the ruggedness of the mountains, the beauty of the mountains, the welcomeness of the people. The fact that Pakistan's tourism industry is kind of like Nepal was in the 70s. So it's so untouched in so many ways. Uh, completely fell in love that. So that's sort of a beginning of an answer to you that the trek to to K2 base camp is incredible. It's like 120 miles long. More than half of it is actually on an active glacier. Whereas in Nepal, you're kind of wandering in the valleys and things like that. In Pakistan, you're on 100 miles long glaciers for days at a time with the most jagged rocky peaks on the planet around you, like Nameless Tower and Trango Tower and the Kays and the Gashabrums and all these mountains. And so my 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 world was blown away by the trek. With that said, the lack of sort of like um Maturity in the tourism industry means there's a real limited level of hygiene. There's no plan yet for human waste in the camps. Uh, there's, you know, boiling water from the river is still not considered standard. And so I ended up getting very, very sick. And a number of us did. Um uh, I got really stomach sick on like day four of the track. The trek was meant to take six days. It ended up taking 11 days because I couldn't move for three days. And uh, I was just completely wrecked. I went through two courses of antibiotics, nothing touched this, ended up getting um, flagell flowing in from uh, Islamabad and ran in by a porter who I will never forget, um, who did massive days to get it to me. And uh, flaggel ultimately killed this protozoa or whatever I had in my system. But, you know, I lost, you know, eight or 10 pounds in my first 11 days on the mountain when I was meant to be going in, you know, as strong as possible. Instead, I was going in as weak as possible. I, uh, you know, Went through all my clean laundry, as you can probably probably imagine. <laughs> I got to it, it was it was not a happy seat. If I, you know, it, I, I remember saying at the time, and I honestly, if someone had offered me a helicopter home on like day seven or eight of that experience, I, I think I would have gone home. I really do. So, luckily, there were no helis.
2: <laughs> and then, not not long after that, didn't you run into some sort of? Porter strike or Sherpa
0: strike? Yeah, well, so ultimately our porters who were with us were stuck for days on the trail, which they don't like. They want to get up and get back, even though you're offering to pay more. But worse than that, the porters from other teams had continued going and hit super deep snow on the way to K2 base camp. It was the biggest snow winter that Pakistan had seen in two decades. And so those porters and horses were coming back out from base camp and telling stories to all porters about horses dying about thigh deep snow about all these things and so our porters were all just like peace we're out like
2: we're leaving <laughs> and,
0: I, and i understand right? <laughs> like, you know the work has to be worth it and and they have to feel like their safety is reasonable and that's that, that's correct so you know at the time it was very frustrating there was no it wasn't That we were unfairly paying, we were offering double wages, we offered to break trail, go first, whatever. It just didn't matter. Like they had reached their limit of these stories just sounding too dangerous. So then what we ended up doing is, you know, all these other team supporters were coming down. So we spent, I didn't, I was too sick, but my teammates spent, you know, three days essentially negotiating a team of 20 that were willing to go back up for the right wages and with the right support and with the right equipment and things like that. So persuading enough of them to turn around and support us back up.
1: This is like a war of attrition here. Like I, I I hear these stories from like World War One as a comparison, where you're just where you're just trying to get troops to the front, and you lose half your number before you're even in the trenches.
0: With the major, major thing that we should never forget being, we do this completely by choice and completely selfishly, and uh, (laughs) and we're looking for hardship, right? The only reason to go to mountains and climb them is because we want more hardship in our lives, and we're really lucky to be in a position where. We've got the extra energy and resources to be like, yeah, let's go suffer. Well, that sounds fun.
1: So after that, climbing the peak was was cake. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't cake. It wasn't, it, of course, it was cake. I know you're joking, but it, it was yeah. cool that like
0: I actually started getting stronger. You know, so like that feeling of like starting to get stronger is a great way to go through anything, like a race or a long job or, or a climbing season, or in this case, a mountain. Um, in some ways, I think I was lucky, even though I, I was weaker. Like I just kept felt, feeling stronger as the expedition goes on, went on. My partner, Carla Perez, didn't get the the protozoa or the parasite until two weeks later. So she went down, she got really sick, much closer to the summit push. And I think that ultimately was the the harder road. <laughs>
2: So are you recommending diarrhea as your pre-climbing plan?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of true, right? <laughs> if you could perform while pooping your pants, you are ready for high altitude. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's funny. It's a, it's a joke, but it is it is true. Like the people I see, I've seen so many people now perform in the high mountains. And being able to perform while truly deeply suffering um, and while things are going wrong, I do think is, is a, a, a feature of all successful high altitude climbers. Um, so anyway, you can practice that at home. Yeah, go give yourself some diarrhea and go out and, you know, ride your road bike or go for a run or whatever it is. Anyway, it's great training.
1: Man, was that... Was that the toughest peak you've ever? uh, I hate to say bagged, you know, like because peak bagging is its own thing. What would you say that's the toughest mountain um, expedition you've been on?
0: Yeah, yeah. Toughest is uh, toughest is such a tough word, but like because. and it but I like it because it's kind of big picture. It was not the most technical mountain I've climbed. I've climbed harder rock and ice roots on lower peaks. It was not the purely most physical difficult peak, because that for me would be Everest without oxygen. But I think it was the toughest overall. Like that expedition, so many things went wrong. Um, I got so sick. 95% of climbers on the mountain that season went home because season was such a bad one and for morale that's really difficult to push through so all these things came together to yes i'd say make it my toughest personal expedition that i had ever been on and like if if you've got to plug the film if, if people are interested in kind of hearing that specific story uh i and my teammates topo and kala and eddie bauer our sponsor made a film called breathtaking uh, about our k2 climb and the way we structured the film was almost Not chronological. It was all the things that went wrong until something finally went right because that's how the expedition (laughs) really felt. It just felt like we just could not catch a break for the first six or seven weeks of the expedition. And that sent everybody else home except us and one other team. And then as it turned out on the summit push, like things could not have gone better. Wind blew off all this deep snow that had stopped all the other teams, reduced a bunch of the avalanche hazard, the really scary bottleneck. Ice fall glacier that kills so many people on that mountain. Chose that 24 hours not to drop any pieces on us. We had a windless day where I climbed the second tallest mountain in the world in leather gloves, like what you go outside and do gardening in, instead of like mittens. Like it could not have been more perfect after seven weeks of everything going wrong. So it was a it was a special one. I'm still kind of, feel, you know, of course I get questions all the time of what's next, what's next, what's next, right? And like, still, what are we, we're a year and a half later now, and I'm still like, I'm still trying to hold on to like contentedness. I think it's really easy to chase the what's next, and this was a really big one
1: for me. It's been more than two decades now since Adrian ditched medical school. The years have piled up, and he's a steady figure in the climbing community around the world. We often don't think that mountains are something that can change in a course of a couple of decades. But Adrian says that climate change has taken hold.
0: It It is super pronounced. And that's one of the big reasons that I got involved with a group called Protect Our Winters to try to use my platform and voice to, to, to have us all thinking about climate change and to encourage kind of like big policy changes around how we think about climate change. Um, you, it, it is just amazing how the glaciers have changed in two decades, especially in... I guess what we call like the equatorial glaciers. So countries like Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, Tanzania, those are the countries where I've seen it the most. Um, in Peru, where I guide every single season and have been going for 20 years, um, there are now glaciers peaks that we guide in with Alpenglow expeditions where we have to walk on a rock moraine. So rock that's left over from the glacier. When the glacier recedes. we have to walk an hour and a half to two hours longer on rock before stepping on the glacier. So that's a recession of like, you know, 800 to a thousand vertical feet of ice has pulled back just in my two and a half decade career. Um, and it's not just one random mountain, right? That's That's, on every mountain I work on in those latitudes. So that's the biggest place that I've seen it and noticed it. In the Himalaya, I see a a lessening of stability of glaciers. I think there is recession, but there's also some glaciers in Nepal that haven't actually shown big recession yet. But we're seeing so much melting in like the vertical space, even though not pulling the receding space yet, that things... Glaciers are becoming much more open. The crevasses are much more active. Um, ice falls are just way more dangerous. That's why I won't go through the Kumbu Icefall anymore on the south side of Mount Everest. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that. The other thing we're seeing is a change in... in. Uh, it used to be we had very specific seasons for these different mountains and weeks when we could be very confident in the weather patterns of the jet stream moving and the storms being here and things like that. And now there's like weirding of weather is making it so much harder to predict good seasons to go and climb these various different mountains. In places like Peru, again, the season has changed by almost a complete month from what it used to be when I used to guide. The season used to be May, June, July and done by August. And now it's fully a mid-June to September season. In two decades, we've seen that big shifting.
2: How does that make you feel when you see the change in the mountains so rapidly?
0: I mean, probably like all of us who really actually get to experience it in our lives. Like I think a lot of Californians now with wildfires in Colorado, too, and things like that. Like it's it's it scares me. And I like I I don't, I don't think there's going to be any quick switch to change things from a climate change perspective. But I think we have to accept that if we can make incremental changes over time. And as more people kind of join the party to make those changes, um, from a country perspective, from an industry perspective, it will have a large scale change overall. So I think, yeah, it, it just, it, it makes me want to do what I can, um, to be a part of that.
1: What do you think, you know, the average Joe, the average Jane, what can the ordinary person do to help get involved, to help with climate change?
0: Yeah. So, um, again, I work with a group called Protect Our Winters. I think they're a really great group to support or to utilize their resources to learn more about what you can do. Um, You know, I do think there is it is important to do small, maybe feel good things that we can do in our individual lives that might be choosing to, you know, travel internationally on planes less is something emily and i are very conscious of we don't do it you know this might sound like a very small sacrifice but like we don't fly internationally anymore for less than a week-long trip like it used to be we'd fly for a talk for an overnight to ecuador or to panama or whatever like we're trying to really cut that down because we know international travel is one of the biggest areas that we add to um to the effect of climate change. Maybe it's an electric vehicle. Maybe it's changing light bulbs. Maybe, you know, there are small things like that that we all can do. But and I think they're important because they show commitment. Um, But more importantly, I think, is choosing to use our voice We need to force governments and industry to make large-scale changes around climate change decisions to reduce our impact. And we can't do that by changing the types of light bulbs we use in our house. and We can't do it by using recyclable bags. Um, We can only do that by holding politicians accountable for their choices around climate change. So if you don't like how someone voted, then get involved to get that person out of office and replace them. I think that's the biggest area we can uh, make change, real, meaningful change on a worldwide scale. And so, you know, that's where my focus is.
1: After K2, Adrian's been sticking closer to home these days. He lives in Tahoe City with his longtime partner, Emily Harrington, and their dog, named Cat. A professional climber of colossal fame, Emily feels at home in a number of disciplines she's a five-time U.S. national sport climbing champion, she owns numerous first female ascents of 514 routes, She summited Everest, and skied the world's sixth highest peak, Choayu. In November, Emily became the first woman to free-climb Golden Gate on Yosemite's flagship monolith, El Capitan, completing the climb in under 24 hours, becoming the fourth woman in history to free-climb El Cap in a day. She joins Tommy Caldwell, the late Brad Golight and Alex Honnold in the very short list of people who have ever climbed Golden Gate in a day. Knowing how much this goal meant to Emily, Adrian took the season off to support her through this goal. He had the honor of belaying her through a good portion of the route. Adrian literally lights up and beams when he talks about Emily.
0: Yeah, we actually, uh, we got engaged at home in uh, in May while we were kind of fully locked down in Tahoe and it was kind of a bright spot. Um, but so Emily is a professional rock climber and she's been working for years on this goal to free climb in less than 24 hours a route on El Capitan in Yosemite, uh, a really difficult route called Golden Gate that had only been free climbed uh in 24 hours three times before and never by a woman and uh she started really working on the goal back in 2015 and it was a life mission and uh this season last month like you said she succeeded in 21 hours and for people who aren't familiar free climbing is not free soloing that's what alex hownell does without a rope free climbing. You have a rope to catch you if you fall, but you move upwards, you climb only using your hands and your feet. So the rope can only be used to catch your fall. And if you do fall, you have to go back down to the beginning of that rope length and climb that pitch again, that rope length again without falling before you can move on to the next one. So to climb three and a half thousand feet of very technical 512 and 513 rock climbing without falling in less than 24 hours is, uh, unbelievably difficult (laughs) for me it was just this amazing opportunity to um and, and one of maybe the you know covid silver linings that maybe we are over talked about but i did get to just fully give my time and my support to emily for a whole season um and it was incredible to to be a part of and to watch her Put that level really for the last year. She's done nothing but train for this. After she took that really scary fall a year ago and almost got herself killed on it, she put a year into training and not really doing any other types of expeditions, not doing a lot of corporate speaking and the other things we do to make a living, but just being truly dedicated to this. And she sent it in an amazing style, like you know, Alex Honnold belayed her for the first half, I belayed her for the second half. We had a film crew of our closest friends with us, and she just. She led every single pitch, you know, the places she fell, she lowered down and did them again, and it was amazing.
1: Adrian mentioned that Emily took a serious fall a year ago on that same route and had to be rescued from the wall with a head injury and rope burns that grounded her a while. But she came back with a vengeance in 2020, more ready than ever to get this done. But at one point, Emily took another big fall. Adrian was on the other end of the rope, and his blood dripped down to the ledge... Adrian couldn't help but wonder if the injuries were too serious for her to continue on.
0: Yeah, so she had this really good beginning to her day, you know, started climbing at whatever it was, one in the morning, climbing through the night with Alex moving really fast over the quote-unquote easier terrain, which is all 510, 511, and 512, and they were using a system called... simul climbing for a lot of that. So taking a bit more risk, but able to move really quickly. And that's why I didn't climb that section with her. Like I'm just not nearly as talented as Alex and free climbing on El Cap, as you can imagine, (laughs) not even in the same room. And so he was the right person to support her in that time and be able to move really quickly over the first 2000 feet. So Through that first part of the day, I was meeting them at various points and giving them backpacks of like food and water and things like that on the route, which was really fun and filming a little bit. And so I was seeing she was having an amazing day. So I was quite hopeful. She had worked so hard. She was clearly capable. She was much stronger than last year and she came really close last year. So I was really confident where Alex and I traded off the belay about two thirds of the way up. And then Alex was going to Jumar out our fixed lines that we had for the film crew and go home or go bouldering or whatever he does with his day. And I was going to stay for like the harder, longer, more suffering part of the day where she was going to have to dig really deep. So Emily kind of traded like speed for empathy, I think is kind of how it worked out. But the wild thing is right where she traded was on one of, right where we traded belays was on one of the hardest 513 pitches. And it happened to be this really still hot part of the day. El Cap gets sun all day. And while a lot of the day she'd been climbing in 40 and 50 degree temperatures, it was now like you know, 81 degrees with not a breath of wind on the face. And she wanted to try anyway because she was moving so well and had climbed everything so strongly. So she went up. The first time she tried the pitch, uh, a foot slipped in the hardest part of it. She pulled a piece of gear. So she took a really big fall, but it was clean. She probably fell 30 feet or so, um, but totally clean. She was fine. She lowered back down to the ledge, hung out for an hour, 45 minutes to an hour, felt pretty good and decided to try again in the hot sun again. She went up, this time climbed through that part she had fallen before and was doing this long traverse when her foot slipped again. And this time she fell really sideways. And one day everyone will see this video footage when the film comes out, but she she couldn't get her feet in front of her in time. And so her hip kind of hit and swung her in and her head just Bounced off the rock like a basketball. It's really gross to watch, and uh, oh. and she got this like pretty good head wound that bled a lot. Like I was on the ledge, eighty feet below, and the first thing that happened is like three huge drops of blood hit me on the ledge and the filmer. And we we're like, "Oh no, here we go again." Kind of like remembering the year before when she ended up in the hospital oh. from a head injury, and. Uh, and she lowered down and it was pretty scary for an hour. And we did a bunch of kind of like first aid concussion assessment. Got the same doctor on the phone that I worked with on Everest and K2 and things like that, who's one of our closest friends, the name Monica, um, and kind of did full concussion assessment. And over an hour or so, we decided she was banged up and it bled up. You know, it looked pretty scary, like head wounds do, but um, she didn't have concussion symptoms. And so, She kind of did what she probably needed to do from the beginning, which was wait for sunset so the wall could cool down again. Um, She waited for sunset, gathered herself, probably spent two or three hours resting, and then uh, put it together and sent the pitch perfectly, cleanly, and kept on moving.
1: With Emily taking a bad whipper and with you doing Everest, uh, including one time without uh, oxygen, how do each of you deal with the other person doing dangerous stuff? like, how does it make you feel when she's going for something crazy? Or how does she feel when you're going for something crazy?
0: Do you, do you have another hour and a half? We can start another podcast.
1: <laughs> that's I, like, I would get that's Emily like, on the phone and bring her in. Exactly. On this. <laughs> that's, like the bit, that's
0: like the big question and something we, we like, struggle with so much. Um, like, I think, you know, first and foremost, we do a lot of talking about risk. We talk about it a lot. We recognize it's a part of both of our worlds. Me with altitude, just like you said, Emily, you know, the gymnastic world of climbing she came from, kind of sport climbing, and gym climbing, it was considered very safe. But now that she's chosen to do things like speed climbing big walls, that now has a very high level of risk. Um, and so, you know, we, we talk a lot about the risk, whether it's worth it if it's still worth it, why it's worth it for a specific goal, you know, kind of calling each other out or, are we doing it for like the media or sponsors or because it's truly a passion and a love and something that's important for us for the right reasons. Then we talk a lot about partnership and who we're climbing with and why we're climbing with that person and how to, how to, accept the risk and then minimize and mitigate the risk to the greatest level we can. And I think over nine years together, we've developed a huge amount of trust in each other's decision-making around risk, not meaning we never call each other out or we never get the calculation wrong, but that we, we do trust each other. And and if it is important to the other person, we have to support it.
2: I got to know what, what is home life for you? I mean, is there any portion of it that's just kind of what people would consider normal? I mean you <laughs> do your laundry do you do you make meals at home? Do you have anything normal going on there?
0: I mean, of course there is. I think the only maybe difference is that like quote unquote normal is like something we cherish so much when we get to have it because we don't get to have it a lot of the time. Our our normal year before 2020 was still being a part uh, at least five months a year and still both traveling internationally, probably eight months a year. But that, you know, some of that was overlapped, which is why we're only up pod five months a year. And so like when we do get to be home doing things like laundry and taking the dog for a walk to the beach and, um, cooking, even though I, I don't think either of us are fantastic cooks, like we love those things. Those things never get like old for us. Um, but, but Yeah. Love all that stuff. And that's kind of what we've been doing a lot of this year. When we were home in April and May, we kind of realized all of a sudden we had been in the same place together for nine weeks for the first time ever in our relationship. We had never spent nine weeks together. Um, And so, you know. That was good to know we can do that before we got engaged. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Test it out. Exactly. <laughs> when and where did you two meet?
0: Yeah, we met on Mount Everest, believe it or not. Uh, in 2012, uh, I was guiding whatever that was, my fifth or sixth season on the mountain. And Emily was invited By Conrad Anker on a North Face Mayo Clinic Everest climb where they were going to do a bunch of science, including comparing people who had a lot of altitude experience to people who had no altitude experience. So Emily had never been above 14,000 feet before. She'd only done Colorado 14ers. Um she was a professional rock climber obviously super talented ice climber because you can do that below fourteen thousand feet she would won ice climbing competitions but she'd never been up high she would not have been accepted on one of my guiding trips but if she was part of this science experiment of conrad and the mayo clinic and uh conrad was a friend of mine and and asked if he could set up a base camp next to ours, So our camps were close together. And we actually did not meet, we we might've seen each other in base camp, but we never were introduced to each other. And then at uh, 21,000 feet on the mountain, Corey Richards, who later became one of my greatest climbing partners, who was also on Emily and Conrad's team, Uh, was really sick and potentially needed rescued off the mountain at 21,000 feet. We thought he had pulmonary edema. My team had all these huge commercial resources of extra oxygen and strong shop and a doctor. So I went over to see how I could help with the rescue and, uh, um, As it turned out, things were kind of like already in motion. So Conrad said, let's go have a coffee. I had a little handheld espresso machine that I bring everywhere with me. And uh, so I made this coffee. While I was making the coffee, I like saw Emily in the corner. I'm like, she is definitely getting the first espresso. And uh, that's where we met. And we ended up spending an hour at 21,000 feet while Cory Richards was trying not to die. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And here we are nine years
2: later. engaged what a great story that is so amazing it was pretty (laughs)
0: amazing
2: you guys are definitely the power couple that's pretty amazing i love it what a great story
0: i i I, I thank conrad regularly for for making the opportunity (laughs) happen
1: So I want to wrap this up, not by asking the "what's next mm-hmm. for you" question. I'm going to ask a variation of that because, as you said, you get asked the question a million times. So we're going to ask a, di- a different variation oh. of this. What is next for you that doesn't involve big climbs or big guiding trips? What else is next for you besides that? Yeah, well, that's great.
0: Well, I, I mean, I guess I've I, I always want two answers when I get these questions, but I've already seeded the main one, which is. Uh, Emily and I are going to get married in December. We're we're hoping December 2021 is far enough out that we can actually have a party again with all our friends and loved ones. And I think everyone's going to really need a good party by then. So that's kind of what next. And, uh, you know, I say that really lightly, but I, I take it really seriously. Like, uh, getting married is a big deal and like we want we want to do it right we've spent a lot of time making sure that we're right for each other and so it, it's a big part of 2021
1: right on man <laughs> yeah thanks well in the meantime then thank you again so much for joining us today on the show Adrian uh, best of luck to you please give our best uh, to Emily as well um, and always put in a good word for us if you're willing to <laughs> maybe have her as a future guest on this show
0: <laughs> absolutely thanks. I think she'd love it I mean she is she's just the most incredible she's been doing a lot of podcasts and uh and and media as you can imagine and uh i whenever i sit on the side of the room and listen to her she's pretty incredible so if if you'd like to have her sometime i'm I'm sure she'd love to but thank you so much for having uh me here as well it's been fun
2: oh we'd love to have her and it was great talking to you today thanks adrian
1: great take care adrian thanks both Thanks so much for being on the show, Adrian. Really appreciate it. Best of luck to you and Emily. All right. You, the listeners, if you want to follow Adrian, go to www.adrianbollinger.com or follow him on Instagram at Adrian Bollinger. And for Alpenglow Expeditions, same thing, www.alpenglowexpeditions.com or at Alpenglow Expeditions on Instagram. And as always, we'll make sure to include links to all of these places in our show notes. Reminder of three quick things. If you love today's episode, make sure to go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice rating and review for us. Helps the show get noticed. Uh, make sure to follow us at Out and Back Podcast on Instagram. And then finally, make sure to swing over to www.gaiagps.com slash podcast to snag that sweet 50% discount. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, we wish you all the best, everyone. See you in two weeks. Bye bye.